0: Good morning. The reading this morning is taken from a book called 50 Spiritual Classics by Tom Butler Bowden, and he is writing or wrote about William James, and the topic is The Motivation of the Convert. Both psychology and religion, James observed, agree that a person can be transformed by forces apparently beyond their normal consciousness. But while psychology defines these forces as unconscious, that is, within the self, in religion, redemption comes from outside the person, a gift from God. To the rational or scientific frame of mind, the born-again person or garden-variety religious convert may seem unbalanced or even a nutcase. Conversion can be sudden, James pointed out, and that does not mean it is pathological. To the onlooker... It may look like patching on a holy outlook to a person's existing life. But to the one experiencing it, it is a total transformation. Suddenly, it is the other people who are in the dark. James recognized a pattern of conversion experiences. They tended to happen when people were so low they just gave up. And the vacuum of hope provided the space for the revelation. The religious literature is full of stories along these lines in which the constrictions and negative aspects of the ego are finally discarded, and we begin to live only for others or for some other higher goal. The compensation for becoming dependent on God is letting go of fear, and it is this that makes conversion such a liberating experience. It is the fearlessness and sense of the absolute security in God that gives converts their breathtaking motivation. An apparently perfectly normal person will give up everything and become a missionary in the jungle or found a monastery in the desert because of a belief. Yet this invisible thing will drastically change their outward circumstances which led James to the unavoidable conclusion that for such a person, their conversion or spiritual experience is a fact. Indeed, more real than anything that had so far happened for them in their lives. And our speaker today is the visionary leader of this vibrant and abundant community called the Centre for Spiritual Living. In Edmonton, our spiritual director... Please join me in welcoming Reverend Patrick Kamen.
1: <clears throat> Brought my lunch in case we go long. Let's move a few things around here and get ready. How's everybody today? All right, awesome. A beautiful day, huh? What a country. Minus 30, plus 30, we got it all. All right. So I'm going to invite you, if you'd like, to stand and sing a song with me or stay seated. That's whatever feels good for you. And then we're going to say a prayer. To move us into fearlessness and knowing and clarity. In this very room, there's quite enough love. Spirit is in this very room, in this very room, in this very room. So what I know in this moment, I invite you to know with me, one life, one power, and as we choose it, it chooses us. So may we open to that energetic and the vibration of the Most High. That which we don't know, something within us does know. May we become more mindful and finely tuned to that conversation that can guide and lead and support resources, intuitively direct, as well as intellectually declare and know. So we work with both sides of the brain, the left and the right, in beautiful harmony and symphony. And to know that it is ours this day to plant seeds of possibility like never before. To give birth to a consciousness that is longing to be expressed in our individual and collective lives. For there is no private good. Our shifting and changing is the world's shifting and changing. The peace that we seek, the abundance, the prosperity, the joy, the celebration, the creativity that we seek and give expression to is everyone's. And we give it generously and openly. And we also say yes to all the good that continues to flow into our lives, whether whatever way, shape, or form that is. And so I just give thanks this day, knowing that something wonderful is seeking expression, and I am the place where that can show up, as are you. And with that said, I give thanks, and together we say, and so it is. Please be seated. It's my friend Julie Bull in the back waving at me? She did that for several months, and I didn't wave back, and she would take me to task every time that I would not wave back to Julie. And so Julie was our MC at the last uh, Teen Talent Show, and so I sat in the audience, and I went like this the whole time. And she never waved back. I said, it's not an easy gig, is it, being up there and paying attention to everybody? Because I got people who go like this at me and like that and everything, and I just can't do them all back, see? So I just want to let you know that... And there's some other hand signals they give me occasionally that I... The peace sign. So I brought brought lunch for everybody. I brought, uh, here, Elaine. so Orange for you. So the orange. Have you ever had an orange? Anybody here had an orange? Anybody here not had an orange? All right. So how would you describe the orange? Sweet. Sweet. Juicy. Orange? Orange? (laughs) Tangy. All right. All that neat stuff. And so I start to peel the orange with my special design peeler. And it's, it's juicy because it's dripping right now. And so all of a sudden I can smell it. Now, what, what does it smell like to y'all, this orange? It smells like lemon. Smells like lemon. <laughs> the orange smells like lemon. Okay. It's there for, to some it does. So it's, yeah, it's citrusy. Anything else that you can think of? Fresh? I can barely hear you. So yell it out. Don't be shy. Designed for sharing. Because pieces, yeah, that's a great one. We hadn't had that one at the previous service. Wonderful. So those are some descriptions of the orange, right? I just about got it peeled here. But you know what? We can, we can spend the next hour talking about what the orange looks like, t- smells like, feels like, texture, and all that. Comes in its own wrapper, quite amazing. You know Who thought that one up? The own wrapper, and it comes for sharing. Here, I give her some orange. Does she, does she want some orange? You're gonna have some, I got plenty of orange. Jimmy, here, come on, we'll give her some orange. She can have this one. So the point being, Grandma's got orange for you. See, I gave Grandma one, and right away she wants one. So, Just like a woman, isn't it? Let's get behind something. <laughs> I am, I'm getting hand signals right now. I'm going to tell you, it's delicious. <laughs> but that's just another description. My point being is, we don't know what the orange tastes like until we eat it. And all the words, all the description, until you have a taste of it, and then it's very hard to describe. Because it, tastes, and it has so many wonderful flavors. And I'm doing a blind tasting and workshop in Kelowna at the Circle of Love. And it's a lot of fun. You have partners, and I and, uh, have a bunch of different... Array of different tastes, and you don't know what they are. And it's amazing how our taste buds kick in even before we put something in our mouth in anticipation. It's amazing. If I had a lemon up here. You all, some some of you, be puckering and thought about a lemon today, but it's kind of cruel and it's not much fun to eat either. So, but the point is, is with with the orange, you can have all this conversation and description. So, but without tasting it, there's you just don't know. And the same thing is true of spiritual experience. See, and what happens for us many times, or I've watched with people, is that we get an understanding of it. I brought my own handy wipe. We get an understanding of it, and we think right away that we, we got it. Oh, yeah, I understand. I understand transcendence. I understand spirituality. I understand this and this and this. And yet it truly is the experience, which many times is, is indescribable in words. And so I think that it's great to talk about it. It's great to you know, do the spiritual practice. But it's so important for us to understand that we may understand it, but it's so much more important to live it and to be it and to taste it. And I think that that food is such a great metaphor for that. So many times we get trapped in our intellect. So the right brain doesn't allow us to do that. That's the left side. Oh, I understand spirituality, and I've read the story of this, and I've read the story of that, and I've studied this avatar, and I know this this and this. The bottom line is we're here to live life and live life fully. We are the outlet for the divine. Each and every one of us. And this book by Daniel Pink, the, the, the Future Belongs to the Right Brainers, describes beautifully where we're shifting and changing and how that is that proficiency is, has, has been sort of simmering over the years. And it's starting to emerge into our culture because we've moved into the conceptual age because of the abundance on the planet. You all know what a font is on a computer? Everybody have a computer or somewhat computer literate? You all know what fonts are. 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't know font. It wouldn't be so popular in in what we do. But we are in the technology age. We're in the conceptual age where communication is instantaneous. We've never had this before. It's part of the design, it's part of abundance, it's a part of that wireless network and that fiber optics that went around the planet about 20 years ago. Allows us to communicate instantaneously. And the technology I was watching on YouTube a while back, where you can actually fry a hot dog if you have like six cell phones around it, and you can you can bake a bag of that instant popcorn if you just call the numbers, and then all at the same time it'll it'll pop the popcorn. So in fact, we should try that one Sunday. I think what we should do. Do you know how much we spent? Do you know how much was spent on ringtones in 2005? This book was published in 2006. 2005. Daniel Pink says. Last year alone in the United States of America, there was X amount of dollars spent on ringtones. Four million, four billion dollars. Four billion dollars on ringtones. We do not live in an age of abundance. We can spend four billion dollars on ringtones. I I think we should all turn our cell phones on and call one another and see all the various ringtones that are in this room. It would be interesting. But that's part of design because not only does it have to have function. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, if you develop a better mousetrap, they will beat a path to your door. Well not anymore, not unless it looks good too, it's got to have design. Form and function, it's got to have design. And we, and we like the aesthetic. I went and got flowers today, I found out that these are a, a Gerbra, is that correct? Gerbra? Isn't that beautiful? Well oh, it's got a, well t- oh, that doesn't come with, the, that's just a plastic tube they put around it. I was going to say, it, came, it grows a plastic tube around it too. <laughs> that is a, that's an amazing flower. But isn't that beautiful? The beauty, the beauty that we can, we can see all around us and how we put it together. You know, this is a beautiful table before I brought my bag of oranges in here. In fact, if you want to... Anybody like an orange? Anybody really like an orange? Okay, well, they're here. I'm not going to throw it over there because I'll miss. <laughs> and I'll be hiding behind that glass thing again. So, Anyway, they're right there. There's, there's half a dozen of them in there. So Gordon McKenzie is one of the drivers of the Hallmark cards, Hallmark cards, reading cards. And he went into a class, tells a story how he goes into a class of, of first graders, grade one, and he asks them, how many here are artists? And everyone sticks their hand up. Me! Gets into grade two, how many here are artists? About three, three quarters of them. Me! Get into third grade, about a third of them raise their hand. By sixth grade, nobody raises their hand because it's been trained out of them because there's no value in being an artist or at least that's how we've, we've set up our educational system. And they're realizing now that we've done a disservice because the, the quality and the abundance of a nation and an individual is based on, you have to have artists in the room. How many artists are here? All right, see, I told the story backwards at the first, when there were about five people, put their hand up. So by the end of this talk, I'm going to ask you again, how many artists are in this room? Because we're all artists. See, we're designing our lives. We have the opportunity by the refining of our awareness and by the monitoring of our emotional states. Because what happens for us, we have experiences. We have life experiences. They throw us off track. We get upset. We feel hurt, wounded, discouraged, denied, whatever it is. And that's part of the human condition. That's just part of the experience. That's the life school. And what happens, I'll tell you what happens with wise people, with wise, spiritually grounded people. They don't blame anybody. They just stop blaming they just accept responsibility. They figure out what the next next step is, the next effective step is, and they move forward. And for, it takes time. Sometimes it takes time to figure out what that next step is, but they just stop blaming. So when you're playing the blame game, it keeps you stuck. And that's why forgiveness is so important, especially forgiveness of self, because it's so easy to hold ourselves so in such a small way in our own thinking, and so orienting ourselves. How do we design our lives? Because this is the only, this is the next this is the next moment. This moment sets up the next moments. And sometimes we're living out the imprints, as the Buddhists would say, from years and years and years ago. Stuff happens in our lives. I wasn't planning on this. But we're we're subject to a lot of different variables as we go down through this life experience. But we're here to design our lives. We're here to, to choose wisely. And the blessing of us being exposed to this teaching, for myself anyway, is that I know that. I know that if something is not showing up in my life that is healthy or abundant or, or creative or is not... And, and sometimes it's, it's a tragedy. Sometimes it's a disappointment. But I know that that's for a divine right good too. It's all for a greater expression of experience. It's all for a greater awareness so that we can become that, that clean hollow vessel of divine expression. So design stripped to his essence can be defined as the human nature to shape and make our environment in ways without precedent in nature. Dr. Ernest Holmes used to say that the future is not predicated on the past. It has no precedent. And this is true about design. It is there to serve our needs and give meaning to our lives. And see, ultimately that's what it is. All the stuff is just bells and whistles. I mean, we have spaghetti spoons with eyeballs on them that smile back at you. We have toasters. Has anybody looked at toasters lately? I mean, now the old toaster is kind of trendy because it's 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 so retro but there's toasters upon toasters upon toasters i mean you're just toasting some bread for about 45 seconds once a day but we know that it sits on the countertop and if it isn't beautiful and something that we want to show to our friends come on over and see my new toaster (laughs) that we don't want it but that that's part of design it's part of the aesthetic that we long to have it's it's just and there's nothing wrong with that i think that we long for beauty beauty is beauty is a pathway to transcendence but we see it everywhere we are and the advantage is that the design is so readily available now. Now you can have a house designed by a world-class architect for a few thousand dollars. You can go online and download for a few hundred dollars. You can download plans done by world-class architects for pennies, what it used to cost. And so much of it's available. It's the age of abundance. We can download it. It's there. Also, with the, in this, this design is crucial in ways of differentiation. So, I mean, even how we do spiritual community. We do Sunday service like nobody. We have our musicians. We have our speakers. We, have, we do this like nobody else. But it's, it's designed. It's thought out. But it's part of that. Because what we want to do is hopefully create an environment where you can come in and you can put down the things you're carrying with you and you can step into and have the experience. Some, some clue, some insight, some shift or change. I have read it to you the last two weeks about Dr. Holmes that if we aren't setting this up so that when people walk in here, and there's a healing that takes place just coming through the doors. We haven't set it up right. But, but part of it, so we have designed this in a certain way. We have a certain flow to our, our, our service. My, the first church I was in, it was in Fillmore, California, and its founder was Mildred Hinckley. And so one of the um, members finally went to Mildred and said, you know, it's the same every week. It's just the same every week. And what they meant was that she was doing the same talk every week. And Mildred was very loved in that community, and it was, but you know, they wanted to hear a couple fresh ideas, I guess, of what was going on. So Mildred said, oh, I can take care of that. So she said, I'll mix it up. And they thought, great. So the next week, instead of doing the, the announcements at the beginning, she did the announcements at the end. And instead of you know, doing the welcome at the beginning, she, did, you know, she, she mixed it up that way. But she did the same talk again. So she, the, the communication wasn't quite, quite there in terms of what the request was. But that church, and her husband was one of the premier artists. Lawrence Hinckley's picture was on the front of Life magazine, I think in 1953 or 4, along with Walt Disney. They were the two up-and-coming premier young artists in America at the time. And the, the thing that helped the foundation of that church grow was they had a kiln, and they made up trivets, and they had different designs on them so the trivet is the thing that you can take your cooking utensil and it sits on the stove and you set it down when it's hot or it's covered with spaghetti sauce but you set it on the trivet and they built that church with trivets sold them all over the world and you go there there's a story and there's a little house was called the artist barn they had a little kiln in the back and that's where they made all the the trivets that's how they built the church one idea making one thing amazing. It's exactly what Daniel Pink's talking about, figuring out what's wanted and needed and designing it in a way, because Lawrence had that that artistic bent and no one talked him out of it. No one told him by sixth grade, you're not an artist. There's a a school in uh, Philadelphia called CHAD. It is the Chartered High School of Art and Design. And what they did is they realized that they need to develop not only the left side, but the right side. So they teach the curriculum based on the right side of the brain. So they'll teach history and they work with design they work with developing these kids. The kids are all asked to wear a, a shirt and a tie and the girls dressed appropriately as if they're young professionals, as if they're young architects and starting out in the world and so it's quite interesting. 95% attendance rate. 63% in the rest of the schools in Philadelphia. 95% attendance rates because they want to be there because they're learning. They will study Roman history and what they'll do with the kids with the Roman history is they'll have them built an aqueduct a, you a know, small-scale aqueduct to show how the, water, the Romans designed that to bring the water into the, to the uh, city. But they find ways to tap into both sides of the brain. It's just like the orange. If I, can, I describe the orange, tell you about the orange, bum, 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 bum. I remember studying music in, in grade school, and they would go through all the notes, and they would count the notes and tell you the value. And I couldn't remember any of it. And then they would start to play the song, and then they would go through it with the song, and then all of a sudden It made sense. I needed both. I needed to hear the song as well as to know how the notes were counted and so it 's very interesting how we we I, for me that that learning was was imperative on page um, seventy one and seventy two they talk about this this chad experience, and what it says is that these students, no matter what path these students pursue, their experience at this school will enhance their ability to solve problems, to understand others and appreciate the world around them. Essential abilities in the conceptual age. It's just a different way of thinking. See, we're, ca- we're called a new thought tradition. When we get caught up in one way of thinking and that's the only way and the one way, we just limit ourselves, not bad and wrong. There's no scolding going on. It's not bad and wrong. It's just there's a new idea that's seeking expression. The ideas that will bring us, carry us forward in in the next hundred years, most of them haven't been given birth to yet. But we're realizing moving into the conceptual age that's what has to happen. And the right side of the brain, which we're talking about, the developing and working in tandem with the left, that's where a lot of that, that's where the genius lies. And then the, the left side can record the genius, the ideas that are coming through. Very interesting. I mean, for many of you, you're already doing it. But for many people, we're not. And, and to nurture that and to understand how it works, because consciousness shows up in form, consciousness precedes experience. And Daniel Pink has studied this closely enough to be able to articulate some of what's happening, how it's our picturing in the world. And the reason that I think it's important one of my favorite books, we're out of them in the bookstore, but I brought it up for the last three or four weeks by Richard Moss called The Mandala of Being. It's a great book, we'll get more of them in. And he talks about this idea to differentiate consciousness. And the differentiation of consciousness is really important. I I just love this book because I've I've been looking for an idea to support this and all of a sudden I'll pull this book up and I'll open it up to a page and go, wow, this is exactly what I'm looking for. But he says this, the differentiation of consciousness, well-differentiated people, definitions are good, well-differentiated people tend to see more points of view and have less time to limit or dismiss those of others. They are inherently more inclusive, more individual, and better able to tolerate moral ambiguity without being immoral. In other words, they don't set themselves up as the moral police, even though there's things going on in the world that none of us like and support. We don't, that doesn't become our cause, our crusade. You know, we, we do what we can when we can to take a stand. It's very important to do that. But... There's, a, there's an objectivity and there's a consciousness and there's awareness about it that doesn't make us have to kill everyone. You know, as if protesting war. I've never understood this idea that because, because you're against abortion, that you'll kill the doctor. I just don't understand. I mean, and I'm not trying to defend it one way or another, but that thinking, the very thing you're trying to prevent, death, is the very thing you're going go to go to, to to make your point? I mean, it's, I don't know. So anyway, but that happens. Poorly differentiated people are less able to adapt, accept differing points of view and must defend their sense of self through strong identification with a group image or consensus values. These individuals are much more likely to feel threatened by any position that approaches unknowing, and they cannot trust their own inner deep instincts because they borrow their identity from outside themselves rather than listening within. This tends to make them highly dogmatic categorically, especially in their morality, and easily influenced by the opinions of those whom they elevate to positions of higher, of higher moral or spiritual authority. Their beliefs and values are elevated to unchallengeable, and they're divine. They're divine truths, because in this way they make their identity secure. Amazing stuff. And one of the things he talks about is this idea of ego. That... That ego, this idea in some of the Western or Eastern cultures of this death of ego. In fact, I was reading something yesterday talking about it. And he says, you know, it's not about the death of the ego. You have to have the ego so you can have your personal experience. So I don't think anybody has that, that, uh, that goal in mind, but maybe you do. But he said that it's, it's a common misunderstanding. If the ego were destroyed, we would lose the vehicle for expressing ourselves personally. And if it were transcended, if the ego were transcended, we probably would have skipped past the crucial work of dealing with our survival personalities and their shadows. Laura and I went and spent some time with a mystic a couple years ago, spent a retreat with him a week. And he was a mystic, and he was in that transcendent state. And I, my sense of what the experience was was that the, the opportunity to deal with the survival personality and the shadow had been overlooked because he didn't do people well, didn't do the, the world well. And so there was that differentiation of consciousness. It was the understanding of the transcendence. You can have the transcendence. You might not be a, a fit for other people. And it's a very interesting thing. See, that, so the stuff, the juice is in the stuff. The shadow stuff and those, the, the personality stuff that's a challenge for us. that We wish should go away. That's where the work is. That's where the juice is. You get to look at that. And then all of a sudden what happens is you don't ever stop perhaps being... Uh, upset about something happening on the planet when you see, see when you see something that looks like absolute st- stupidity it, it's, it doesn't mean you're not affected by it but you've elevated it in your own awareness to have an insight and an awareness about it that doesn't allow you to get hooked and then that thing doesn't run you anymore you realize it as a condition and you can say that doesn't one of my favorite phrases is that does not represent me yesterday i'm meeting with someone and they said do you ever worry about someone coming up coming into church where you're up there talking and shooting you And I said, Well, we usually, usually check the handguns at the door when people come in. I know, and I just immediately said, That is not in my consciousness. That is not in my consciousness. It's just not something that energetically I participate in. You know, it's just, it's not a lie for me. I don't, don't even give it any. So I just know that I stand in that. But I thought it was a really strange comment. And so, you know, but that's part of that the story that they're telling themselves around this. There's a story of a, that I think is an illustration of this. So as we move along, it's always about subtraction. It's always about putting things down. And an American is in England, and he's getting on a train to travel, and he's dressed very nicely with a pair of white slacks, uh, newly pressed, and a nice blazer. And he's, he gets on the train, and he goes into one of the, the compartments. And an English gentleman sits down across from him, and then another little English lady walks in with her little dog. Muffy, and Muffy's got mud all over its feet, and so the American's sitting there, and Muffy walks over and puts his legs up on the white pants and just goes like this, and like this, like this, and, and the, the the English lady walks over and says, oh, "Muffy, come here, come here, come here. I know it's a bit cramped in here, and I, you must be a bit excited. Come on over here and just calm down." And the American looks down; and his pants are just covered with mud now, and doesn't say anything. And the train starts out, and a little while later, Muffy walks over and he just lifts his leg and pisses all over the guy's pants. And the guy's sitting there looking, and Lacey says, Oh, Muffy, come here, come here, come here. She grabs him and says, Oh, you poor thing. You must have an upset stomach. We'll be there soon. And so the guy's sitting there and not saying anything, and all of a sudden, Muffy starts heading over there again. And So Muffy gets within reach of the guy, and the guy reaches over, picks Muffy up, opens a window, and tosses him out. (laughs) And the Englishman says, You know, that's just like you Americans. He said, You drive on the wrong side of the road, you hold the fork in the wrong hand when you eat, and you just threw the wrong person out the window. I think it's true of our spiritual practice. I think if it's our, it's our to understand, I think when we, when we do that spiritual bypass with, with the things that go on for us, the shadow self, those areas that are so juicy and rich and wonderful, our addictions, oh my gosh. What great stuff to work with. you got an addiction. you got the spiritual energy for transcendence, for doing all the work. You just got stuck on one thing. That's energy. That's just energy being directed in the wrong way. I mean, there's, there's ways. To, so we throw the wrong things out the window many times. And we'll do the spiritual bypass sometimes. And, and, and the gift of it is to jump right into the juice and do the work and, and do it to the best of your ability. I'm fully in. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And it's such a wonderful path. But it takes time. It takes time to retrain ourselves and to retrain ourselves. I'll never forget one of the most significant moments in my life was the morning after my wife and I had separated. And we knew it was over. And I went and stayed with a friend that night. And I got up the next morning and I just, I had no sense of self. I was so utterly depressed and sad. And as William Jane's article this morning talks about that sometimes you just have to get to the point of just complete exhaustion I was completely exhausted completely depressed completely everything you can think of in some form of negativity and as I was walking to my vehicle because I realized that as I was, got up and I had to go to work and life went on and you know everybody else was in their own story and I'm, and I'm in mine and as I got out the front door and I looked and I, and I could see my vehicle over there, and I said, you know what, I don't know what this day is going to bring, but I know I can make it from here to that. That was my goal. And then when I got there, I sat down and I said, you know what, now I know I can start this vehicle. I started it. And I went through the whole day like that, sort of in present moment. It was the only way I could function. And I'll tell you, while I was doing that, this presence, this awareness, despite the sadness... There was this life force that I could sense and feel, it was part of who and what I was, like never before. And I thought, oh my gosh, despite all that's happening, it's all gonna be okay. It's all gonna work out. Because I'm not living a big enough idea. And for my and for my wife at the time too. We weren't living a big enough idea. And the whole thing had to go so that new opportunities and new awarenesses, and it was depressing. I mean, within those glimmers of hope, it was like, my God, I've never, I never felt so ecstatic in my life at times for this bizarre reason. I thought I was losing my mind. And really what it was was that I'd done, enough, I'd done enough affirmative prayer that I could go there in those moments, and something wonderful and beautiful was just sort of holding me. And it was one of the most beautifully sad moments I've ever experienced in my life. But it was so profound. And everything, every defense I had, had to be put aside to have that. Because I was so busy holding it all together most of my life. And so I share that with you because it was, you know, I don't wish that on anyone. I tell Laura many times, worst thing I ever went through in my life, best thing I ever went through in my life. But isn't that true of the great things that move us forward? When we're playing too small, the universe comes up and just slaps us on the side of the face and says, hey man, wake up. Come on. you got things to do. Time's awaiting, as John Wayne would say. You're burning, you're burning daylight. Let's go. It's interesting. Uh, we put this labyrinth in, and there's a lot of labyrinths that are going into hospitals. There's a lot of healthcare facilities now with labyrinths. The Gray, the gray Nuns has a little one. I went down and helped them uh, christen it and introduce it. They have a seven-circuit labyrinth. Uh Quite lovely. You'll see a lot of healthcare facilities. In the book, Daniel Pink talks about there's, 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 um, there's hospitals now, and then we'll bring you guys up. We'll do this song because we're going to dance some today. We've got to dance today, yeah? This beautiful day, yeah. So anyway, but in hospitals now, they find that when it's well lit, when you have plenty of light, 21% less drugs are used there for medicating, for, for, for helping people with pain. 21% less. All you need is light. Do you have enough light in your life? I mean, go out and stand in the light and the sunlight. We have created an environment in our house, Laura and I. We built this deck, little deck, the back of our house. We live out there in the summertime. It's just beautiful, full of flowers. As soon as we can plant, we're planting. We're on it. Now we know. Not before May long weekend, because, man, (laughs) bad things can happen. We know. We're like this, waiting to plant, because we're longing for the color, man. It's just in keeping things alive. I've told you that story. Larry Anderson said, hey, if you love that, come on over and plant at my house, because that was done years ago. But, but that's alive for us. It's bringing the light into our lives. And, it's li- li- and working with the differentiation of consciousness, and that is ongoing. That never stops. That never stops. Uh, Dr. Gans is over here. He works with people psychologically and spiritually. Very gifted man. But I bet you if I ask you, Gans, is anyone's journey ever over? Do we ever get to put our heads down and just go, ah, made it. No, exactly. So if we're going to be on this journey together, let's, let's be on a journey in a path that's exciting and bear some powerful and wonderful fruit. You know what I mean? I mean, we've got the rest of our lives to live, whether it be a day or a hundred years. Let's live it well. Let's live it right. I'm going to bring them. There they are. All right, we're going to sing and dance again. So I've asked them to, let's, uh, so I want you all to stand up. Where are you going? we are you going to dance? Are you coming up here to dance with me? Come on. All right. Here we go. great musicians, and not using them more is like having a Rolls Royce in the garage and never taking it out for a ride. All right, thank you. Woo. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So, so this week, look at your life. Look at how you're designing yourself. How are you designing your next thought, your next step, your next awareness? What is alive for you? That's the, that's the task. That's the opportunity for all of us, and it's exciting. It's exciting because we know what's happening. We don't have to get lost in this. There is a way. There is a way home. There is a way back each and every time we forget. And that's back to ourselves. And so I just, I bless you. I, I just salute you for your courage and your integrity and the ability and the willingness to continue to step up and do the work that's necessary. And so it is. Woo! Yeah.